And then I got it and it's like, oh, fuck, this is actually a really heavy flu. This kind of sucks. Um, I shouldn't have listened to the I'm going to live pump. forever. I shouldn't have listened to the idiots who are like, oh, it's just a little sniffles. Oh, my God. Like, uh, you said you. I don't like lockdown. Therefore, this disease must be fake. That's logic for you. That's George logic for you. That's yeah. true. But, you know, the opposite extreme is being a COVID cuck, you see, and look how far it got. You still got COVID anyway. So but I wasn't go. a COVID cuck. I was like going out, doing things, being in bars, um, you know, sharing drinks, yes, it, spitting in people's mouths, your... having them spit in mine, <laughs> the whole lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, like your, it's your, your lack of subjectivity that made you susceptible to the disease. No, 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 no. Actually, quite specifically, it was an excess of subjectivity, um, mm. which led me left me completely spent after two weeks and lots sure. of work sure. and traveling <laughs> and meeting people and drinking and and not enough sleep. That then left me vulnerable to to COVID. I'm so you know, sure. you, you, excess of subjectivity. But you only have so much. I you think. can't just use your subjectivity <laughs> willy willy nilly. Um, I think it was dearth. I think it was the dirt. more you the and more you also, use it, the more you have. It's like indeed, a muscle. Yes. In, and I think also it's possible that you brought a new variant into Brazil that will decimate like all the campesinos in the jungle. Campesinos in the and, jungle, right? You need a fucking geography lesson, mate. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, how sad will you be if this this is the final blow to the favela population? <laughs> The, it won't be the, the final place for Vanilla. <laughs> I think they've all been the Alex. COVID has very much passed through. Oh Jesus! Brazil in, in a very serious way. So and then the, the Alex be variant of COVID. Tell us if there are any specific like symptoms of the Alex variant, though. Um, no, I mean, well, massive um, cock, massive cock. Um, but though that was pre-existing, but, but, but well, it's, we do it's... know the cuck was pre-existing. That's true. That's how you got COVID to begin with. What's happened? What's happened to your voice? It's gone all, the accent's gone all weird. <laughs> no, that was definitely pre-existing. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was always that way. What about like, you know, weakly formulated arguments? And I mean, I guess, you know, we'll never be able Ayo. to tell, will well, we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Today will be proof of that. Anyway, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Sunday, the 19th of June. I'm still very much Alex Hochuli, despite what rumors may suggest. Uh, Philip Cunliffe, I'm not sure he can uh, make statements as to his own uh, perpetuation, uh, constancy and whatnot. And George Hoare, who can do likewise. I'm Hello. happy here to be here and maintain maintain rumors towards my own constancy. I'm always happy to do that. <laughs> Um, and I a, want to that reassure was a good listeners, introduction. I want to reassure listeners not to feel too much sympathy for Alex. Um, you know, he's been partying lots. He's been spitting in lots of people's mouths, having lots of people spit in his mouth. So don't feel too sympath yeah. too sympathetic for. No, him. no, it's yeah, um, it's it's the yin and the yang, and now I'm I'm you know knee deep in the yang. So 
Um, an odd expression. Uh, anyway, so this is the three articles. Uh, by now you know the deal, but uh, if you don't, this is where we each bring an article on a specific theme, which we try to cohere around a, a central theme. Uh, generally on current affairs, sometimes not. And actually this time what we're doing is looking at the 1990s, three different pieces, um, two very recent, one from a little while ago, looking back at what the 1990s were and whether our times today are continuous with them, uh, which of course is something that interests us quite a bit. Uh, people who will have read The End of the End of History will know that we start the book and kind of trying to depict what the end of history was like from our perspective, what we felt it was like, um, and try to also be objective about what it felt like for most people. And so the 90s is kind of an important period, um, which all these articles sort of broach as an idea that, well, the 90s were kind of boring, but actually were they, you know, question mark. Um, so anyway, we're going to discuss these, and as always, we'll try to provide a political perspective, Draw, try to draw out what the political um, importance or political angle that these articles are driving at, you know, so not just a kind of, oh, this is their analysis, this is their description, but what is the politics behind it, and indeed then try to advance our own political understanding and perspective on the basis of that. So anyway, um, we'll get started, and the first piece uh, is George's. Yeah, so <clears throat> first piece um, was in the New Statesman, 24th of March, 2021, by Gavin Jacobson, and it is the 1990s, an age without qualities. Um, and so the, the piece starts, often heralded as the best decade ever, the 1990s brought dark warnings about the future, and many have come to pass. And so in, I, it's, it's a, an article which reviews quite a lot of, I guess, his, histories of the 90s um, analysis at the time, some of the key texts from the period. Um, and basically, I think the, the view of the 90s that comes through is basically as, as follows. So <clears throat> the 90s were this potentially this era of kind of global peace accords, global governance, replacing national sovereignty. You had the Internet emerging as this global monoculture and also as a non-place, just like an airport, hotel or a, or a shopping mall or shopping centre, as we would say in the UK, as one of these places with, without, again, yeah, without definite qualities to, to um, get back to the title of the article. <clears throat> in the American politics, you had the 90s as this period of culture wars. In the UK, it was New Labour's particular take on culture wars and modernisation. And the key defining, I guess, um, starting point of the 90s was that it was a period of lost horizons, as, as Jacobson takes this idea from Eric Hobsbawm, the, the historian. On the one hand, you had the loss of the horizon of socialism. On the other hand, the kind of the loss of the horizon even of the public. And so people were retreating to private uh, consumption. And yeah, Jacobson concludes by sort of saying or, or referring to this um, Tocqueville um metaphor when Tocqueville was talking about Frederick the Great's modernization that you have this modern head and the gothic body that you have the the surface seeming to have been modernized um, but actually there's still quite a lot of gothic old crap underneath it the surfaces are shiny and bright but they're vaguely threatening as as J.G. Ballard wrote because there's a lot of stuff underneath which isn't quite modernized so I, I mean yeah I think it'd be interesting to draw out what the the political line is here because I think it's more of a summary of a lot of different um an analysts views of the 90s but yeah so I think it's a good starting point because it gives kind of an, an overview of a lot of um a lot of the key events and key texts of the time 
This is a so this piece is interesting and particularly rereading it or well I'm reading it for the first time but I mean reading it from the vantage point of having you know all of the um, themes that we've drawn out in our own discussions on the pod and also obviously in the book um, politics at the end of the end of history so I suppose what strikes me most um, about the piece is that there's all the kind of tropes are kind of thrown together but there's no real kind of structure or organization in terms of a narrative of um of what actually can, might kind of organize all of these uh, events and uh, happenings and so on um though there is one point which i thought was um you know really well expressed and that is the he takes from the radical journalist alexander coburn he takes from his um, diary, where Alexander Coburn notes that some of the kind of the um, excessiveness of the Republicans in the 1990s, the so-called Gingrich Revolution, when the Republicans took Congress um, under the Bill Clinton administration, some of the excesses were precisely they had to differentiate themselves from the Clintons, because in most, you know, by most kind of standards, they were essentially on the same page. Um, in terms of political economy, in terms of economics, straightforwardly. Um, and thus, they had to kind of seize upon what would essentially become the culture wars as a way of, um, uh, you know, kind of maintaining a pretense of ideological theatre. Yeah. And he, he doesn't particularly dwell on that as a central point, but nonetheless, it's a point that's well made, I think, about the about the culture wars. Yeah, I think I think that's well made, and I think something that still applies today. And I guess in a lot of this... The question is, you know, to what extent are our times continuous with the 1990s, right? And so, you know, the, the emergence of culture wars, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, right? And and, and we, we obviously have tried to draw a line, uh, not underneath it entirely and saying, hey, that's completely a, a different epoch, but, you know, that the end of history starts to crumble and it starts, and that crumbling starts to accelerate around, you know, 2016 or whatever. Um, so and, it's use, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's useful to be reminded, you know. I mean, I think that's important. But then he overstates it. So he notes, you know, like Golden Dawn, the Greek fascist party um, was founded in this era. The Danish People's Party was founded in this era. So he kind of draws the roots of populism, of our current kind of um, nationalist populism to that era. He makes the point about how Gingrich, kind of the Gingrich era, also kind of presaged some of the America First era. But then it's overstated as well. You know, I mean, Pat Buchanan, who was the original kind of America first um, uh, Trump kind of as far as Trumpian politics can be rooted in the post-Cold War era, that, you know, some of that began with Pat Buchanan in terms of its some of its kind of motifs and ideas. Um, but that was different from what the Gingrich kind of uh, Republicans represented. So he tends to kind of blend it all together. And then he talks about Paul Kennedy's book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which was this kind of doorstopper for um, Bian Ponson kind of, you know, doom pilling that happened before doom pilling was a thing in the late 90s and sorry, er, late 80s and early 90s about the end of the American empire. Um, and so I guess, and he's trying, you know, the obviously the resonance with now comes across again, right? Whether or not America is declining in face of um, in face of uh, China's growing power, so it's one of these pieces which has lots of kind of resonances and echoes and uh, implicit kind of comparisons and parallels, but also misses, I think, some important um, some important points around which you can frame and organize 
a case, which is what obviously we tried to do in our book. And, you know, I mean, between the between the kind of American declinism of the late 1980s and the American declinism of our contemporary era, you genuinely did have the year of American unipolarity. Um, and so, you know, I think it's uh, it's kind of rushing a bit to collapse the preceding 30 years into the end of the 1980s. Yeah, and I think this is the, the major thing that I think it, I would definitely agree with in the in the article is <clears throat> essentially the way that the 90s is situated as like when do the 90s start? Well, at that point around Lost Horizons and around the you know the, the, is the beginning of the uh, the end of history period, and I think that is that is completely correct, and that gives it this idea of you know the age without qualities or defined in a negative way, or there is something which I think is definitely you know is definitely there in, in in the piece but yeah i guess the question of like when did the 90s end i think that the piece kind of talks about the the millennium dome which might be a very british reference but this idea of you know the millennium bug <clears throat> and this kind of you know that the 90s ended in on the 1st of january 2000 on the 1st of january 2000 but that's not i mean i wouldn't say that's true at all i mean it is it is only in 2016 that you see the the 90s really ending this kind of period of you know without qualities um starting to finally develop some some qualities and i think that's you know that is probably links to your point phil that there's it is it is more of a presentation of i think a lot of really useful stuff rather than here's an attempt to to say what this period means beyond just like 10 calendar years um having this kind of cohering um feeling to it yeah, and I think, you know, insofar as it captures the mood music, and you know, I think it does that quite well, right? Trying to capture the mood of the 1990s, yeah. which is something yeah. that we do as well. What there's do you think is to... the mood music of the 1990s? Well, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to say the mute because there's obviously the reference to kind of slacker culture or to like kind of 90s rave or to, you know, yeah. kind of Euro pop. I don't know, whatever. I, I don't care to to characterize it necessarily, um, especially because on on other opposite sides of the Atlantic, it ends up being quite different. But um, I think the it, the interesting thing is that you know there's obviously similarities in terms of what we say. The references to J.G. Ballard, who I think better than anyone captured the mood of the of those times of post history of kind of um, you know we we reference a different book to, <laughs> to what Gavin Jacobson does. He references Cocaine Nights. We reference um, I think it was Supercan or it was uh, or maybe it was Cocaine Nights as well. I can't recall no, even now. No, we did we did Cocaine Nights as right well. as well, which is the same idea of kind of a billion balconies facing the sun. Basically, society has retired, um, and but because you have no real stimuli, no real conflicts, which shape and struggles which shape your self-conception, your whole society, that you go out in search of kind of, uh, you know, bizarre explosive moments of violence, for example. And that's really to, the, to a point which I wanted to make, which is that in, the, in Jacobson's piece, there's an element of um, contradiction between two moods. One, which is catastrophe, sense of impending catastrophe, and the other, which is, you know, total placid waters of, of expanding globalization. And then we have to kind of ask ourselves, you know, do these both coexist or is one real and the other imaginary, right? Um, because it's, it's, impo it's important to, it's important yeah, to remember, for yeah. example, you know, in reference to the sense of impending catastrophe, the point that Zizek makes, we imagined 9-11 before it even happened, right? So if the 90s is seen to end with 9-11, which many people do feel it, it did, then, um, you know, 9-11 was preempted by, uh, you know, uh, what's the date, what's the 
well, various films actually, which imagine kind of our, our, our impending catastrophe, whether it's Independence Day or whatever, which come before it. So, you know, which which is the true story of the 90s? Is it impending disaster or is it actually, no, there, there's literally nothing happen, happening, everyone's bored and, you know, just waiting for something to happen? Well, yeah, I mean, so Jacobson does talk about uh, Prozac and antidepressants and um, Rave as well. And I think it's a good, he, it's, it's a good uh, line that he takes from Jeremy um, Della that raves were nothing less than a death ritual to mark the transition of Britain from an industrial to a service economy. So there is a kind of like the mood is also one of depressive hedonism or kind of like, I don't know, numbing. It's not boredom. I mean, uh, you know, it's this the kind of the value, um, this kind of very Ballardian like account of like people looking to, to escape from um, from reality I guess maybe it is escape from the boredom into 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 numbness um, but yeah I think it's a good, it's kind of a good question like what was the overriding um, cultural cultural mood it was very it was I think very very pessimistic um, partly because there was no you know as we've talked about no horizons so no no sense of <clears throat> kind of forward motion of history yeah, or, or whatever or, Just, or, maybe, uh, or maybe it was that that the optimism that there was was very flaky and actually when we come to uh another article we'll actually kind of touch on on how kind of you know sort of this sort of flaky optimism but i think that was the thing it seemed sort of disconnected to people's real life world you know that there was this um formal optimism in the in the arenas of formal politics which were detached from people um of everything you know everything getting better you know charts showing how there's growth and then expanding trade and all the rest of it uh, and then that kind of clashed quite strongly with the general cultural predisposition, which was a sort of nihilist boredom or sense of impending catastrophe, um, or indeed, you know, kind of conspiracy theories of total control and whatever, which we'll come on to discuss as well in reference to the second piece, which talks a little bit about, um, you know, the kind of anti-globalization movement. I but mean, it, I would say, sorry, go on, Alex. Uh, there, there was just one other point, which I wanted to, which, which, uh, George drew out actually, and I hadn't really picked up very much on it when I first read the article, which was this idea of being modern, but not modern enough. Okay. That's obviously a, a theme that um, often preoccupies me, but the idea that the nineties was kind of had a modern head on a, on a kind of Gothic body. That's. I don't think that's what I he's saying. Really he's saying, but he's not, that's not what he's saying. So he's saying like in the case of uh, Frederick the great, right. The point was that it was Gothic in the sense of medieval, with a modern head, sure. Um, so that it wasn't, you know, the kind of the uh, the supposed modernization undertaken by the absolutist state in that era didn't actually wasn't as thoroughgoing as it appeared. Right. So, so I don't think he's saying that you know the nineties were medieval, and I think he's saying that in fact the air, you know, what seemed like all this kind of shiny um, Blairite style transformation and modernization was actually very superficial and that the problems that were inherited from the 20th, I mean, this is the way I understand what he's saying. The problems that were inherited from the 20th century were the kind of Gothic body in the, in this context. Mm, I mean, that's interesting because I think I'm not sure. in some ways, in, in some ways, the 1990s represent the fact that that, you know, Gothic body and, you know, the neoliberal understanding of the Gothic body is all these corporatist forms, labor unions as well, which actually by the 90s are, are really fading. So they're kind of, you know, yeah, they're I not a, 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 an important part. Um, and uh, or even kind of more forms of tradition, right? Uh, you know, John Major in the UK, who was prime minister from 91 to 97. Um, 
himself, you know, tried to do this reheated traditionalism and it really fell flat. And he, you know, his, his, his uh, premiership was a bit of a damn squib and Blair swept in on this kind of modernizing horse. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think the nineties are oh already God, there's very... so many mixed metaphors there. I know, I know. Course. Terrible modernizing. Jesus yeah. Christ. Look, that's the COVID it's COVID brain. Um, mm. But anyway, you know, I think by, by the 1990s, it's already very modern in that regard, um, in, you know, in society as a whole, or it's already open for all the kind of multiculturalism, the kind of flexibilization of, of uh, you know, attitudes towards race and gender and so on. Um, I, and, and the openness towards consumerism and the pursuit of the person through consumption. I think it's already all the old things have fallen away, both socialist and traditionalist um, by the 1990s. So I'm not sure if there, there is that much of a Gothic body then. Yeah. I mean, so just to go back to this, you know, this, this, this point, um, the, the starting point of like the, the dark warnings that the nineties supposedly gave us, I think this is the, the, the part what for me would be the weakest part of, of this article is like yeah so the 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 gothic body an age of reactionary populism unbounded corporate power economic and international instability culture war mass depression surveillance capitalism and an obsession with celebrity culture so i mean i just think that first one the age of reactionary populism is that really correct i don't think that this was a dark warning that the 90s the 90s gave us i think this is reading I would say some of the new statesman's um, occupations about contemporary so-called reactionary populism into the nineties. I don't think, you know, there are some of these um, <clears throat> populist parties which formally started in the nineties, but UKIP was not a defining actor in the 1990s, at least in, in you know, in, in my account of, of that decade. So I think there is a little bit of trying to see this Gothic body as kind of, I don't know, there's some, some, I had rot at the, at, at the center and it's, you know, the body politic is all corrupted and, and cancerous because of reactionary populism. But that's just what the new statesman thinks about to, today being read back into it. And I have to say, it's not like, it's not a, it's not a central point of the essay at all. It's almost something that's been put in by the, <clears throat> by the sub editor at the, uh, at the end of the process to sort of say, well, you know, this, can we see um, in the nineties, like the, the starting, points of like uh, the, the you know the new statesman readers who, who remember 97 and call britannia and oasis and blur and you know and mogwive maybe they're they're sort of like oh yeah the 90s were great but then it's like no actually this is when it all started to go wrong so don't look I back think, I mean, in uh, i think i think that with nostalgia too much i think that's probably true i think that so the case the case being made is that the the changes that um kind of Blairite modernization in Britain, I suppose, and equivalents elsewhere were supposed supposed to bring about didn't. And so the Gothic body, like you say, in this case is kind of corporate power, um, reactionary populist insurgencies and so on. Um, and so but he that, says but that's in, where it's in, wrong, right? To see to see reactionary populism as some monster from the past, which started to reemerge in the 90s. That's what's wrong, because what is precisely no, the, the truth agree. of the matter is that's that reactionary just... populism is a monster of very much of uh, it's a product of post yeah, uh, post political true. technocracy. So I think that. So I mean, I'd agree. I mean, I suppose all I'm saying is just to be accurate about what he was trying to say. I mean, you know, look, it's I suppose uh, it's difficult 
uh, at the it's very difficult to be kind of um, to generalize at this level, um, you know, as uh, as we ourselves know, right? Um, I think, I mean, I think his case isn't helped by the lack of structure and the implicit slash explicit claim that you can kind of dissolve the features of our current era, simply dissolve it away into the 1990s and the end of history. I think that, you know, I mean, that's kind of, um, I don't think that works particularly. But, I mean, that aside, you know, the kind of the... Um, it's very difficult. And I think for all that said, I think, you know, there are some fantastically evocative examples and plenty of things that I wish, in fact, that we had included ourselves um, mm. in our kind of uh, various generalizations of the shift from the end of history to the end of the end of history. Like the great kind of um, the great uh, point, the great quote from the Don DeLillo, Don DeLillo novel, um, Underworld about the guy who feels like at least the Cold War was reassuring and misses the Cold War, one of the characters in that novel. Um, but there's plenty, you know, there's plenty of others and lots of kind of suggestive and evocative parallels and insights. So as far as these um, these kinds of um, pieces that aspire to some historic sweep, you know, I think it's a good it's a good piece to um, to stimulate thought about it. All right, um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, and that's uh, Phil's introduction of another article which looks back at the 90s and what the 90s maybe were yeah. or weren't. Yeah, so this is kind of uh, kind of on a similar theme in terms of this question of trying to identify how far there are similarities and differences with the 1990s. It's, by, it's published in Jacobin um, on the 30th of March this year, and it's by Ryan Ziggraff. And the title of the piece is, Were the 1990s Really Devoid of Politics? And Ziggraf makes his case by way of a review of um, a book by Chuck Klosterman um, called The 90s. And he makes the point, his dissatisfaction, though he, I mean, he credits the book with some kind of insights and interesting observations about society and culture of the period, but he makes the kind of, um, makes his case by way of criticizing the, um, by criticizing the Klosterman, by criticizing Klosterman's account of politics. And he says that really it's kind of a superficial, it takes the, 90, the 1990s own uh, misunderstanding of politics and presents it as if it were good coin. And that in fact, there was plenty more that was happening that you would have realized about the 1990s at the time if you didn't take your cue from like, you know, kind of pop culture shows like Seinfeld or what MTV was doing, for instance. So he complains, um, Ziggraf complains, you know, that Klosterman kind of spends equal amounts of time on significant political figures as on, you know, kind of uh, cultural figures who's... Um, MTV personalities, for instance, who are now totally forgotten. So, I mean, I have, haven't read um, Klosterman's book, so I can't comment on that. But the what I'm interested in is this, I suppose this is the central question for us to consider, is how far, how far to give a meaningful account of a particular era, you have to take its own self-understandings. Um, so, you know, we could assemble, as Ziggraf tries to do, you can assemble all sorts of countervailing evidence and say, look, you know, that there was actually politics in the 1990s, whatever, you know, whatever kind of MTV might have been doing and whatever kind of the culture and mainstream establishment might have wished you to believe. Um, but I'm not sure that really makes the case effectively. 
right? Simply kind of assembling counterexamples of what was happening in the anti-globalization movement um, or kind of various uh, political, um, you know, political uprisings of various kinds that that counts. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think that was, I, I think he makes an interesting point, or at least this is my reading of, of the point that Ryan Zickraft makes. It's that, you know, that in this, the book that is reviewed that the 90s is cast in cultural terms, but that itself is reflective of the cultural turn uh, of the 1990s, you know, and that's why you get more Cobain than Clinton, um, as he puts it, which I think is, is, is a nice bit of phrasing. Um, and yeah, I, I don't, you, you asked the right question, Phil, um, how, to what extent should we uh, try to seek a, seek to understand like a decade in its own terms, in the terms in which it understood itself. Um, and I, I don't think we should, right? I think, you know, if you want to present a sort of materialist analysis of the 90s, you want to say, okay, but what was really going on and what provoked these self-understandings, which were cultural, which were about slacker culture and like nothing really matters and boredom and whatever. And it's like, okay, well, that is... Um, that is an illusion, but it's somehow a real illusion, right? It, that there's a real reason why the 90 people in the 90s conceived of themselves and as of their decade as somehow meaningless, lax, free floating, yeah. and so on. And it was because of the, the tension had kind of been sucked out of the room by the end of the Cold War and growth was, was going up and everything was kind of more or less okay. There was uh, credit fueled consumption and all the rest. And I think Ryan is right to try to draw our attention in his article to some real politics that were happening. Um, I, I'm not sure I would agree with the, the exact See, correct, I, that he draw. I don't think he draws our attention exactly to the right politics that, that were happening at the well, time. Yeah. Um, but but he's right, at least in his attempt to do so. George? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I think uh, fundamentally, I, I'm not sure I agree with the argument of, of the article that is that <clears throat> if you look in the right place, you can find the real politics that was going on in the nineties. I mean, this is, I would, I would say this is one of the implications of the end of history thesis is that, yeah, I mean, there was obviously were, comp, you know, material conflicts of various sorts, but in terms of that horizon of socialism, that horizon of like that kind of big, big narratives of, uh, of politics, weren't weren't really there and i mean i think this is the the examples that he gives and about kind of seventy five thousand people mar marching on washington dc to protest um <clears throat> against the persian gulf war battle in seattle in world trade organized against you know world trade organization in 1999 it's like that's not i don't think that's really sufficient to persuade me um that the 90s shouldn't, you know, that it's not useful to think about the 90s from a cultural perspective and that it's, you know, it was all, it was a political decade. I guess basically my conclusion is that I don't, I don't rate the Gen Xers, sorry to any yeah. Gen Xers out there. I, I don't have... think they were really intensely political. I think they were just, yeah. you know, a bunch of, well, you know, a bunch of I Gen X slackers. Much as yeah. I, I mean, you know, like, uh, I know how desperately Alex wants to believe the opposite but I, i'm afraid i agree with george on this one like Why? i mean it's very it's the conceit it, it's the conceit of these kinds of verbs that they kind of mobilize you know they kind of uh, plead and stamp their foot and insist 
um, and you know, kind of, uh, they thrust out their jaw, they thrust out their chin, and they're very angry. They insist, you know, no, I went on this march, you know, like I went on this anti-globalization march. I didn't support the invasion of Iraq, and therefore, you know, like they don't want their failed kind of and meaningless political experience to be discounted. Um, and rather than thinking about how all of those kind of, all of that politics, in fact, kind of reproduced or was some in some sense interlocked with the prevailing consensus, you know, like um, um, anti-globalization, for instance, I mean, you know, that was uh, very made very little headway for reasons that are fairly obvious. I mean, it was part of the anti-globalization was kind of part of globalism itself, right? The idea that it was possible to resolve political problems by retreating from the level of national democracy it was defined it was defined by the same problem so the you know the globe the global elite had their conferences with the uh, wto and the imf and what have you and the other global elite had their own conferences in porto alegre you know the ngos and the radical activists and all of that so you know i think to say that there was you know by simply kind of pointing to porto alegre and insisting that that was meaningful i don't think that makes the case that there was kind of a great deal of political ferment um and the point i guess you know the important point about the um about the gulf war march was that was the anti-gulf war march in the us that was the last gasp of the anti-vietnam war movement once that was gone there was very little effective counter mobilization against the forever wars with the sole exception of iraq and that was because the left and the activists and all of them, they bought in or at least had no meaningful opposition that they could mobilize to the forever wars of this period because they were cast in the um, in the guise of spreading democracy and defending human rights. So I think, I mean, I think it's kind of, it's just unconvincing essentially what Zigrab tries well, to do here. Well, I, I, taking a, like a hook on what you said, I think the right way to understand the 90s, and I've kind of made this point before is that it's the tail end and the very end of the 1960s right um or, or certainly the period of the end of history maybe even the period leading up to 2008 uh if we want to take the 90s that far you know to extend some some sort of idea of the long 90s it's the night it's the very tail end of the 1960s of the counterculture and so the form of politics that happened with you know seattle 99 genoa 2001 uh you know all the kind of anti-globalization movements was in a sense um the kind of last gasp i think of that sort of politics um especially once it became completely unmoored from traditional kind of left and labor organizations um and so you know i that doesn't mean that suddenly the 90s should be understood as a popular, uh, excuse me, a political decade. I think that is not, the, you know, if you're going to try to describe it pithily, that is not the term you should use for the 1990s. If anything, I think it's correct to say the 1990s are a cultural decade, not a political decade. Um, but what we should do, I think, at least looking back at, uh, at the 1990s and trying to politicize the 1990s is not to necessarily say, hey, look at this resist these modes of resistance that there were because we know that they failed and they weren't that strong uh, but but rather to look at kind of okay and and, and ryan zikraff suggests that we do this so look at the full force of the neoliberal assault that was actually happening in the 1990s because this is something that actually gets written out of the story a little bit uh, the 1980s are seen as the decade especially for as concerns the uk and the us Reagan and Thatcher leading the neoliberal assault on the welfare state and all the rest. Um, whereas the 1990s was very much a continuation of that, or but with the 
um, you know, barriers already removed, right? So the kind of social resistance against it having been largely removed. In, well, uh, and the also in the UK. And the... so, and so there's a lot, and, and yeah. it's treated very often in history of the 1990s as a sort of fait accompli or like an easy sailing through of, of this process of um, states dropping barriers to help globalization and so on, deregulation and, and passing through NAFTA and whatever. And the, it's, the tensions of it are never really explored. It's always treated as a sort of fait accompli and presented in a very flat manner. Like you can just reel off this sequence of events. Um, and, and somehow the political economy and the kind of critical political economy perspective that should be brought to bear there gets a little bit, gets washed out. You know, it's, it's just background music. Like, oh yeah, there was NATO, um, but but also, you know, Kurt Cobain, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, just a quick a quick point on this. I think the, you know, it's it's Blair and Clinton. It's not um, Thatcher and Reagan, and that just shows how, if you know, what was Thatcher's greatest achievement? Tony Blair. I mean, like it's it shows that you've gone from <clears throat> the the bad guys, quote unquote, on the right doing it to the good guys, quote unquote, on on the left doing it. So it's like, yeah, you you can. I think that there is a, a certain sense of you know the continuity and not completion but very much the success of that political project of neoliberalism that is i think i mean you make a good point alex um and obviously i mean we're talking without having read the Klosterman book and i'm sure you know i mean i'm happy to take uh ziggraf's criticisms um you know obviously at face value and um unless i read the book um but I think, you know, I would, so, I mean, I think, and you make a good point, like I say, that you do need to think about what happens in that period in terms of the institutional changes, the legislative changes, and the political changes. And this isn't, you know, this isn't done by simply um, collapsing the 1990s into what was done in the 1980s. And he makes, you know, he makes this point. But nonetheless, I mean, I'd say, usually, I think the ziggraph that is, does lean too heavily, as I've already said, on, um you know, on the kind of uh, what the left did in this period as evidence of contestation. And I suppose the question you have to ask is how meaningful was that contestation? It cut, um, you know, what social kind of groups, constituencies did it mobilize? How far was it ideologically challenging? And I think, I mean, ultimately, you know, like it wasn't. And I think that's also evident by the fact that political figures that he draws attention to, Ralph Nader, you know, who the hell remembers him? And Bernie Sanders, you know, the busted flush um, uh, of uh, contemporary kind of um, contemporary democratic politics. So to that extent, I mean, I think there is, you know, there is this kind of um, this unwillingness to face uh, this unwillingness to kind of fully confront um, the impotence of the left in the last 30 years in these kinds of pieces notwithstanding you, the fact that we do need a more yeah. comprehensive account of what happened in the period. There, there is one one final thing I want to point out, though, and a very yeah, small okay. thing that the Zikrap article suggests, <clears throat> is that at the far fringes of the left, there's always been kind of conspiracy theories, you know, a kind of structural, if not real, anti-Semitism um, in various forms. And all the anti-globalization movement had plenty of it, you know, and like this kind of global cabal controlling things, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's interesting to look back at that and think, well, you know, in around left mobilizations today in the West, 
th those sorts of crazies are no longer really there. They tend to be actually on, on the right, um, on kind of right populist, for lack of a better word, mobilizations. And that's kind of, I think, interesting and, and would substantiate the argument that I was making that the 90s represented still the end of the 1960s and that we're past that now, that the left mm. doesn't really represent any kind of um, space of cultural alterity or cultural difference outside the mainstream because the left doesn't no. really incubate that many that many of those types anymore. What are you talking um, about? The, le the left doesn't... Like literally, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking... Literally, what am I talking about? Well, for example, literally like deranged, like we've talked about knobs in our book, right? It's called neoliberal order breakdown but, but syndrome, all, Alex. Yes, but One all, of its but, leading symptoms is leftist derangement about Putin controlling everything in the world. Yes, but those are all that mainstream. But, though, but they're all theories. but they're all in line with the mainstream. So they're not that. So the difference is that um, whereas these in the 1990s at these demonstrations, you know, there were people saying, hey, we should have fair trade. And then there were also people saying, uh, actually, you know, the WTO uh, is trying to control your brain through blah, 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 right? Um, nowadays, you find those same things, but they're at the kind of right-wing anti-vax demonstrations. Um, we're saying, you know, the vax are going to, you know, vaccines are going to implement, implant, you know, 5G chips. I'm in not, sure, I'm not sure, sure. I'm not sure, sure the anti-vax anti thing is so straightforwardly sure right-wing. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's straightforwardly anti. So the people, the fact, but they're not the 5G, okay. But they're at the very least not self, They're obviously not left wing in a kind of obvious way, right? They don't identify no, with the left. True. They don't self-identify with the left. I don't think there was that much. Con I don't, you know, I don't think there was that much conspiracy. The I don't think conspiracy theorizing was part of the anti-globalization movement. I mean, I think they had a crude understand, you know, they imagined that everything was kind of resolved in these meetings where very little happened. You know, in the end, the Uruguay round was um, the final kind of round of um, global free trade talks. So they overestimated what happened there. But I don't think it was, you know, conspiracy theory in the way that Pete's, the Pizzagate thing was a conspiracy theory or, you know, that Putin won the 2016 election in the US as a conspiracy theory. So I'm saying they were marginal to it. I'm not saying it was a central component. I'm just saying that if we, I, I feel like there were always these conspiratorial outriders on these left-wing demos, which reflected well certain cultural preoccupations seen in media, like films and whatever of the 1990s, of kind of mind control of blah, 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 right? The Matrix and whatnot, which nowadays I'm you don't sure. find so much on left-wing demos, especially if you go to, you know, I don't know, what, re what recent big left-wing demos have there been? Um, Plenty, well, I, plenty know. in the UK. Like, I mean, okay, and you know, and, and I'm not sure those types pandemic. are, and I'm not sure those types are there. They tend to be out on the kind of alternative demo, which is of the right in quotation marks. It depends what you mean by conspiracy theory. I mean, I think the the domination of Russia conspiracy theories, right, is I mean, it's mainstream, but also kind of across it's across the, the board, uh, yeah. the broad swathe of the liberal left, and so you know, but. That aside, I mean, I think there is one, you know, there is one important parallel, um, which I think, you know, so you have, you know, so you do have kind of um, deranged conspiracy theories um, on the right. And the last time that, you know, which have kind of um, public prominence, and the last time that you had that was in the early to mid 1990s, it was the era of the X-Files, right? And you had similar kinds of, um, similar kinds of stuff about, it was the era of the white, you know, there was the panic about the militias, the nationalist militias that were setting up ground. I mean, it was and the obviously, and this was um, reinforced by the Oklahoma bombing, um, which is mentioned in the Ziggraph piece. 
and also it was the era of like um zionist occupation government the kind of the fringe of american kind of uh, conservatism of the time was this idea that the un was going to land peacekeepers in black helicopters and take over the us as part of the new world order that was in the interests of the global jewish conspiracy and whatever which was bizarre because it was like an inverted version of the american empire in a way the new world order was all about dominating the former third world and in the ver in the kind of um, fever brain of the American right, you know, it flipped it and made the new world order about uh, dominating America. Yeah, just one final final list, which I think is that the so the approach to say, okay, this is a cultural history, and actually, you know, where's the where's the political history? I think that there is something to be to be said for that 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 is fundamentally correct that you can't tell a, a history of a decade without looking into the, the politics but i think the, the problem with the zitcraft kind of argument is that it's kind of stays on really on that cultural level to say like okay so you had these you know very highly um yeah i mean quite prominent in cultural terms but in in political institutional terms like what what came out of protests against the wto nothing and i think if you had sort of same story with with all with occupying and things like that but if, if you'd sort of said okay well how do you actually want to tell that, that political history of of the 90s um by you know kind of for example peter mayer's book roaring the void um or his his article which then became a book like looking at declining membership rates looking at you know um of political parties looking at voter turnout looking at you know all, all the things that you could do to say well actually to give a to give a full material account of what happened in politics to counterpose to this um because he says and i you know having not read the costume and i don't i don't know if it's true or not but that it's just interested in politics and economics in terms of how they're shown on tv which which might well be true it will fit fit with the general kind of tone it seems of, of that of that book and if you kind of want to go against that and provide it, it's just a bit more of a of a not a boring story but you have to have some more numbers and some evidence and kind of tra track things but i think you could make a pretty good counter argument that actually politics was did change a lot between the or changes in the 80s became um realized in the 90s and this is an important part of what defined the decade but i don't think you can do that by just adducing here are some counter examples it has to be a bit more of a an engaged um response i think to to the kind of cultural reading of the 90s Okay, so let's move on to, um, well, art, um, where the case for continuity of the 90s seems to be uh, the greatest. So this is uh, my article, it's the 90s, the decade that never ended by Jason Farrago, who uh, I think now is a critic for the New York Times, but this is in the BBC and it was published actually in, in 2015, which is worthy of note in its own right, because uh, to my surprise, I found out that that was seven years ago after doing some quick maths. Um, so, of course, this is at the uh, the beginning of the end of the end of history. Um, you know, this is obviously uh, before I think Corbyn becomes uh, becomes leader of the Labour Party, you know, before Trump really properly launches his campaign and so on. So um, just to put us in mind of what that was like, this was kind of after the euro crisis seemed to be ending, although it was still very uh, a prominent feature, you know, with regards to Greece. So anyway, um, a little bit of a different world but already then reflecting on what the 90s were. Because um, I think, you know, 
one thing I guess that we're trying to say here is that lots of people are reflecting on what the 90s were. We've, we've had enough distance from it. The kids are now wearing 90s style clothes. Uh, so let's examine the 90s. Anyway, so here's an article which is already in, in 2015, looking back on it. Um, and it observes a couple of things. Firstly, that, um, you know, how can we look at the past now in the art world when it seems that museums themselves are more interested in the now than in the past, now or the immediate future than in the past, which I think is an important observation in a general sense, not necessarily uh, with regard to the 90s. But um, despite that, there's a bunch of 90s art retrospectives going on, you know, when Farago was writing this in 2015. What did, what was 90s art like, uh, he, he asked, and, you know, there was a lot of concern with race, sexuality, multiculturalism, all effectively setting the narrative for what we have today. Uh, at, in form, there was uh, effectively a globalization of the art world so that you couldn't even speak anymore of uh, national boundaries or na specifically national movements. It was all transnational and so on, um, which again is a feature, I think, um, you know, and I, I can't really speak for what the art world is doing today because I don't have enough knowledge about it. If you you two guys do, you know, chip in and, and indeed if listeners feel I've missed out on, on something and I know many of you listeners actually are work in the art world or very familiar with it or study it, uh, do chip in with, with um, you know, your two cents on this. Um, but... Uh, so, so uh, combining with that kind of um, aspect of of the, I don't want to say the political economy of it, but the form of it in terms of it being globalized, there was in terms of the form of the artwork, it was moving away from working in a given medium towards experience. And there's a great, great quote from Manchester-based artist Jeremy Deller, who, who said that, I realized that I didn't have to make objects anymore. I could just do these sorts of events, make things happen, work with people and enjoy it which, you know, sounds great. Cool, dude. Um, and that all feels very much the same as now. Um, and I guess this is this is the question then that this article finally prompts is, what if the 1990s are actually still going on, at least as regards art and culture? Um, and, you know, my take, I guess, would just be that the material basis for what created the 90s art world has only grown. Um, and so, you know, maybe in that regard, yeah, we, we still are where we were before. Um, and just uh, to take um, Farago's conclusion as a prompt for a further question, uh, he says that you know, there basically is no Fukuyama end of history because you know the history somehow returns or tur political turbulence returns, but maybe the '90s actually marked the end of culture. Yeah. So I mean, I I found this piece actually not knowing much about the art world. I found this piece really interesting and I think it goes to show how, you know, you can in some ways kind of when you're trying to when you're trying to generalize at this kind of level of historical development that pulling a single thread is sometimes, you know, much more kind of telling than trying to kind of assimilate together culture, economics, politics, society and so on. And, and this idea, and this again, I mean, similarly to the previous two pieces we discussed, it implicitly raises this question of how far we've actually emerged from the 90s. And according to this piece, at least as far as art is concerned in, um, you know, the art capitals of the world, particularly those in the West, it's kind of all part of the same mulchy 
mulchy phenomenon. And the only way that you can really differentiate it is peaks and troughs in the art market, which in turn kind of, you know, uh, map onto peaks and troughs in the various um, asset bubbles that have taken place on the stock market over the last 30 years. So I found it kind of, I found it a fascinating piece. Um, and I think it perhaps makes the case most strongly that we genuinely haven't emerged from the 90s. As far as um, art is concerned, it's still the same kind of strange, um, still the strange kind of formlessness, shapelessness, um, all the kind of quirky, conceptual, um, you know, kind of nonsense things, which bamboozle, you know, and I think ultimately are intended to bamboozle kind of, you know, ordinary, ordinary folk, that kind, that kind of art. Yeah, it certainly bamboozles me. I mean, I, I go to the São Paulo Biennale, uh, Biennale, you know, whenever I can. I mean, it's every two years. And I'm like, uh, the only thing I could add to like this description is like, well, there's a lot more environmental stuff. That's for sure, right? Um, like how art can help save the planet or whatever. Um, but most of it, I just don't understand it. And, you know, I'm, I'm stupid. I don't, I haven't read enough about art. So I can't really place it enough in its context. Alex, uh, you know, it's fine. That's just the COVID. Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it, it, to sum it up, it would, it's just art, which doesn't really strive to say anything. So, I mean, <clears throat> a, wise, a wise man once said that works of art which represent the highest level of spiritual production um, will find favour in the eyes of the bourgeois only if they are presented as being liable to generate directly material wealth. So you have to, um, you have to bring some aesthetic and not just material um, uh, considerations. But having said that, I, th I think there's... I'm not sure I, I think that, so when this article's written, I think is important. It's 2015. So this is, this is still in the end of history period. Um, this is like the period where you do have this um, um, art market just going global, particularly a lot of young British artists. And there's a picture in the, in the article of Damien Hirst's, the, the, the stuffed shark in formaldehyde, the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living and it's like, yeah, so this is the, it's the decade where art became kind of more and increasingly more and more synthesized into, into popular culture. And I think there is a, I mean, we talked about this with reference to the previous articles. I think there is a good argument for saying that the 90s by 2015 still hadn't ended. So I think I would fundamentally agree with this piece when it's written, but say that the end of the 90s was was just around the corner. So the end of the nineties, as I said earlier, I think only you could make a pretty good argument only really ended in 2016 and then, you know, still, still not decisively because then you went from the end of history to the end of the end of history. So it's not a replacement of the nineties with something wholly new. It's just a kind of the ending of that particular kind of age without qualities. So, you know, I think there is something to be said for this kind of argument around continuity. And, you know, as far as I understand, the, the art the art market um, seems seems plausible. Also, Jeremy Deller was was um, referencing two out of the three of these articles. So we've got um, we've got some continuity in, in terms of the, the personnel referenced in these. I think what you're saying is right, George. And, you know, the condition, the material conditions which made for the art not, not and not just the material condition but obviously the kind of um i don't even like world historical conditions which made for and the imagination that goes with that you know i.e the age of globalization insofar as it concerns the art world 
still continue and the material and the more specific material conditions that sustain it. We've already talked about kind of asset price inflation and so on, maybe more um, school leavers going to university and going to art school. That's a, a tendency which has continued. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, alternative and, you know, trying to somehow épater le bourgeois, but being incredibly bourgeois at the same time, um, you know, that's something that's only um, deepened itself, right? So that whatever's alternative is now entirely mainstream. And so all these factors, which I think make up a little bit of what the art world is and yeah. has become, uh, continue and have become strengthened despite all the other turbulence you have in the world. So what, you know, what might've changed is, oh, well now, you know, you have artists being more spikily political, more punky because they're doing art against Trump or art against Brexit or whatever. Um, but that seems yeah, to be a rather right. superficial change on the, on, on, on the face of, you know, what generally art has become, you know, it's not... Maybe, you know, maybe that's art yeah. now, now longer art, just to conclude this thought, art no longer wanting to be like post meaning and just offer experiences and whatever and be incredibly elusive and complex and unreadable to being very directly literate, uh, or excuse me, not literate, but um but but uh, literal and just saying, hey, you know, fuck, my heart says fuck Trump, a bit like that, that poem um, in Peep Show where Jeremy reads... Uh, to to his girlfriend and so it says fuck Bush fuck you Bush um, and it's art that's still one of the like best, best moments in British TV <laughs> it basically is yeah so I guess my my question was was going to be like okay so if if we are if you were to argue that the nineties continued um, it, until twenty fifteen how do we know that the nineties are definitively over now and actually something that you you mentioned earlier Alex I think is the key to all this. It's, it's, I believe the children of the future. And if we look to the youth, what, what are they wearing? They're wearing nineties clothes. Therefore the nineties is over because you, 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 you won't get a retromania for the, for the actually existing current period. So QED, there you go. If I, you know, every time you see an Oasis t-shirt, a, a prodigy t-shirt or an, an Oasis t-shirt, you're like, yep. When the nineties are over, when, when the, uh, the next decade now it, it's going to hurt when someone ironically wears a strokes t-shirt that's going to be like Oof, oh i'm sure it's happened it um has. that's when the noughties are over though yeah but yeah it's uh and it's only a matter of time before all the uh <clears throat> all the bands of of anyone's youth are just repurposed well, we're all getting old. Anyway, so that's the conclusion. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this three articles. Uh, let us know. Let us know, especially about the art world, if you've missed something obvious about some changes that are happening there. Um, and let us know what you think also about this discussion of the 90s and our framing of it. Um, I don't know if it's important to try to understand and get a grips with what the 90s were. Um, you know, I, I think we can we can sort of put it behind us. But I think at least in terms of drawing lines between you know, the end of history and the end of the end of history, I think it's important to at least understand the the 90s and what its contours are and whether, you know, if we're still in it, then maybe the end of history hasn't quite ended yet. So um, I guess that would be the political importance of um, of trying to get to grips with what the 90s are. Anyway, we'll be back with more of these. Um, and that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Fuck you, Bush. Fuck you, Bush. It's time to get out of Iraq, Bush. What were you even doing there in the first place, Bush? You didn't even get properly elected, Bush. Are you happy now, Bush? Fuck you, Bush. Wow. I love the way the last line is the same as the first line. Thanks. I did that on purpose.
there's there's big bad daddies sticking his bad germs inside your arm. Oh no, it's going to turn me into a crocodile. Don't say that to Bunga Daddy. Uh, no, crocodile. But, yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. Is that? Anyway, well, but Bolsonaro said you, if you get if you get a vac- if you get vaccinated, you'll turn into a crocodile. So don't do it. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. Like that is did what he, he really? did. Yes, crocodiles can be like nine meters long or something. If you turn into a crocodile, dumb. that would kind of be like incredible. Be very impressive. It could be a, a monstrous killing machine. 